Hey, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. Good to see you guys. Glad that you are here this morning. Uh, today, we are going to, we're going to continue our study through um, how to interpret the Bible, what we've been calling hermeneutics. The Greek word hermeneuo means to interpret, and so we've been going through a study on how to study the Bible and how to interpret it correctly. And uh, we've gone over a lot of different topics. We've talked about the storyline of Scripture, how you have to know the story of Scripture for it to make sense. David and Goliath is not just a story about how the little guy can beat up the big guy, and Noah's Ark is definitely not just a story about animals, because it involves God, you know, killing everyone. And so it's a much bigger story than that. If you don't realize that there is one overarching storyline in Scripture, uh, when you interpret the Bible, you will always misinterpret it, all right? It's meant to be understood as this progressive story, as God who has created the the world, uh, has faced rebellion from mankind and even angels with demons and these kind of things, and how God is putting the world back to rights through sending the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, to uh, fix what went wrong in the world. We talked about the importance of presuppositions, that whenever you come to a text, you don't ever just read it. You always interpret it. You always have pre-assumptions and preset notions of what you think things mean. And so you can't get rid of those. You just have to be really aware of those. That way you don't read your presuppositions back on to the text. We talked about uh, who determines the meaning of the text. We said out of the author, the text, and the reader, the author is the primary determiner of meaning. We find that meaning, though, in the text. Because God is a perfect author, he can, used, he can use language perfectly. And so to find the text meaning is to find the author's meaning when we're talking about the Bible. But typically, in every other form of literature, uh, those two aren't necessarily linked. And so you are looking for the author's meaning. Uh, Jeff talked about uh, exegetical fallacies last week, these mistakes in interpretation that we make. Right, So assuming that a word means something because of that word's origin, or assuming that a word has all of the same, or that a word has all of its different meanings uh, that are intended any one time that word is used. For example, the word run can mean a bunch of different things. You can go for a run, you can run for office, your nose can run. So if you see the word run, you don't need to read all those definitions onto that, you just need to read one of them onto that. Uh, We saw fallacies of trying to take different kinds of words and combine them together and then act like the meaning of that word is the meaning of the two individual words that you've combined. What does that mean that I just said with a bunch of words? Well, what that means is, for example, if I have the word butterfly, uh, I can't say, well, I know what butter is. It's this delicious margarine stuff that I put on my biscuits. Uh, And I know what a fly is. It's this gross, you know, bug that kind of lands on your hot dogs at a picnic. And so now I know what a butterfly is from those two uh, kind of definitions combined. And so we talked about some of those mistakes. Well, we're getting very, very, very practical today. And really for the rest of the semester, we're going to be, we're transitioning from some of these Uh, more conceptual topics to some things that are a little more practical. And so today we are talking about something called genre, all right, genre. It's actually a French word. The French say genre, but I'm not going to do that because I'm not French. I'm from America, and so I'm going to say genre. Uh, There's actually kind of a a funny joke that uh, D.A. Carson tells. He's a New Testament scholar, and he grew up in French-speaking Canada. And so when he's talking about this topic, he'll say genre instead of genre. Uh, And he makes a joke about also saying that he says the word schedule instead of schedule, which he learned as a boy in shul, all right? So anyway, genre. What is a genre? What's a definition? A genre is a category of artistic composition as in music or literature, characterized by similarities in form, style, or subject matter. 
me read that again. A category of artistic composition, as in music or literature, characterized by similarities in form, style, or subject matter. Okay? So let's talk about some examples of genre in English before we talk about uh, genre in the Bible. So genre is really just different types of literature. All right, poetry is not the same as narrative, is not the same as a doctor's report, is not the same as, uh, you know, a song or something like that. We have different genres of art, of literature, of these different fields. But I'll give you a few, uh, few examples of modern genre. For example, The Lord of the Rings by J.R.R. Tolkien. What kind of genre is that? Yeah, it's fantasy, right? It's what's called fantasy. In fantasy, you expect things like these extravagant battles and adventures. You expect maybe things like magic and good versus evil and battle, you know, I don't know. I'm not a big, uh, big fantasy. Battle warlocks or something. Uh, but you understand kind of uh, the genre of fantasy was something like Lord of the Rings. What about the literary work Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening by Robert Frost? What kind of genre is that? It's poetry, right? It's poetry. If you don't know that, you're just going to think this is a really boring story about a horse that doesn't know which way to go in the snow, all right? But it's not. It's actually about death and these kind of things, is where the direction he's going to take before he dies and these kind of things. And so uh, it's poetry, all right? It's poetry. What about, what genre is War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells? It's science fiction, right? It's science fiction. With science fiction, you expect things like high-advanced technology, lightsabers, maybe aliens, maybe something that's kind of foreign to what's going on, all right? There's certain things you expect with science fiction, okay? That's a type of genre we're familiar with. What about this literary work, okay? This is by William Shirer. This is The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, all right? It's a very popular book, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, It's a history book. So when you're reading The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich, you're not looking for lightsabers. You're not looking for love poetry. You're looking for a historical, literal account of what was going on in World War II, right? What about this one? Now, this one will just warm some of your hearts. What about Lonesome Dove? Hmm? What kind of genre is Lonesome Dove? It's a Western, right? It's a Western novel. It's a Western novel. There's certain things you're looking for in a Western. Certain things you're looking for in a Western novel. What about this one? This one sounds like a real page-turner. Let me give you this piece of literature. Evangelical theology and Karl Barth, representative models of response. Does that sound like a real uh, real stocking stuffer kind of book that you would just want to give to somebody as a gift? Well, no, that's a Ph.D. dissertation. That's actually Al Mohler, the president of Southern Seminary, one of the seminaries we support here at Parkway. That's actually his uh, dissertation topic, all right? So when you're reading... That dissertation, you're expecting a dissertation to read a certain way. It's a certain type of literature, okay? What about Sonnet 116 by William Shakespeare? What is that? Does anybody know what that is? That one's a little, uh, a little advanced, a little tricky. It's actually a really famous love poem, all right? A very, very famous love poem. With love poetry, you expect certain things. Well, the reason I say all of that is because we're already somewhat familiar with different kinds of genres even outside of the Bible, in English literature, or we could have used movies. Movies have all different kind of genres, right? You have dramas, and you have comedies, and you have action-adventure, and you have like a thousand Fast and the Furious movies, although they're all awful and these kind of things. And so you're already kind of familiar with this. Well, today we're going to talk about genres in the Bible. Now, a lot of the things I'm going to use as examples and a lot of the stuff I'm going to talk about today uh, comes from a New Testament scholar named Rob Plummer. 
P-L-U-M-M-E-R. He wrote a very helpful book uh, that I'd recommend to you. It's kind of a lay introduction to hermeneutics. It's called 40 Questions About Interpreting the Bible. And so he mentioned some really helpful things that we will talk about here uh, today. First of all, uh, that he mentions, one of the reasons why it's important that we study genre. Why are we studying genre? Why do we have to care about this? Well, a few reasons. Number one, if you misunderstand the genre of a work, it can result in skewed interpretation. Okay? If you misunderstand the genre of a work, it can result in skewed interpretation. You don't read Revelation the same way you read Matthew. At least you shouldn't. I hope you don't. You don't read the Psalms the same way that you read 2 Kings or something like this. If you do that, it will mess up your interpretation. I'll give you an example. In Judges 11, there's a guy named Jephthah, all right, Jephthah, and he promises God that whatever he sees next, he will sacrifice, and he sees his daughter. Now, are we meant to see that and then say, you know what? I bet that we should sacrifice our children as well because it's here in the Bible. No, that's a historical narrative. It's just telling you something that happened. It's not mentioning whether or not it's good or bad. In fact, it's hinting at the fact that it's very, very bad, okay? To misunderstand a genre can get you into a lot of trouble. There was a guy that was at the first church where I pastored, and uh, he actually would uh, live licentiously uh, and pursue certain forms of sexual immorality, and this was his justification. He said, in the Bible, King David, when he was old, had a virgin who would help keep him warm, okay? All right, who would keep him warm. That's true. That's in the Bible. Two big problems with that. Number one, it says explicitly in the biblical text that that virgin and uh, King David did not become intimate. And two, this guy was using historical narrative of just a random story about David to justify something that the Bible would explicitly condemn in a bunch of other passages. All right? So we can misinterpret genre, and it can cause a lot of trouble. Number two, mislabeling a genre can be an underhanded way of denying the text's truthfulness. All right? Mislabeling a genre can be an underhanded way of denying the text's truthfulness. I'll give you an example of this. Did you know the majority of seminaries and divinity schools and Bible, college in the United, Bible colleges in the United States do not believe in the inerrancy of Scripture? Did you know that? That the major, Out of the thousands that are out there, the majority do not believe in the full inspiration of God's Word. Isn't that crazy? And so what sometimes they'll do is they will misunderstand a genre as a way to deny the text truthfulness. So an example of that is they'll say the story of Jonah. The story of Jonah never happened. That can't happen. That's just some sort of myth that the Jews believed. The problem is that Jonah, the book of Jonah is written from the, from the perspective and the genre of historical narrative. That's the way that Jewish commentators took the story. They took it literally. The fact that there's a lot of specific details in the story means it's meant to be taken literally, right? He goes to Assyria. Uh, There's certain places and these kind of things that are named. And then Jesus, when he talks about Jonah, he takes it literally. He says in the same way that Jonah was in the belly of the whale or great fish. By the way, the, the, the Hebrew word can mean either. People sometimes say whale or great fish. It doesn't matter. The Hebrew word just means something like big sea beast, all right? So even though he's in the... Uh, the uh, belly of this uh, big fish or whale or whatever uh, for three days. So Jesus would be in the belly of the earth, if you will, for three days, uh, talking about his death and then burial and resurrection. Uh, and so misunderstanding or mislabeling a genre can be an underhanded way of denying the text's truthfulness. Number three, misusing the idea of genre can be used to try to excuse oneself from obeying a command, all right? Misusing the idea of genre can be used as a way to try to excuse oneself from obeying a biblical command. Uh, For example, when Jesus commands us to sell everything, 
and follow him, we have a tendency sometimes to downplay that, to say, well, that's just hyperbole. We don't really need to sell everything. That seems really extreme. Well, you might not need to literally give away all your money and everyone go live under a bridge, but his point of whatever you love more than him, you have to give up so that you can love and follow him is true. Conversely, sometimes we can end up adding rules to the Bible, all right, if we don't understand the correct genre. So if you don't understand that Christ has fulfilled the Mosaic law, you're going to be trying to keep all these things that you're not required to keep, and it's going to cause a lot of legalism and pain and frustration in your life, okay? Now, with that in mind, let's talk about some different types of genre. Now, there are more than we're going over today. We're just going over a few uh, for time's sake, but there's a lot more than this, but I want to mention a few of them. Number one, the first type of genre I want to talk about is what is called historical narrative. Historical narrative. By the way, the majority of the Bible falls within this genre. About 60% of the Bible is what is called historical narrative. Historical narrative is where you're telling a historical story. If you were to read a history book, that is historical narrative, okay? If you're reading about somebody's experience during the Civil War, that is historical narrative, okay? So the, the, with historical narrative, we need to keep in mind this is the majority of what the Bible uses as far as a genre to communicate God's message to us. Typically, these are very literal accounts, all right? One of the classic hallmarks of the genre of historical narrative is that it is literal. All right? They're true accounts. A lot of times, they're telling a much bigger story of how Christ saves mankind. This is really, really important. You want to interpret all of your Bible through the lens of Jesus. If you don't do that, you're going to misinterpret it. The temple isn't just about the temple. It's about Christ. Moses isn't just about Moses. It's about another deliverer who would come and take God's people out of their true spiritual bondage to sin away from the, an evil pharaoh named the devil. Uh, King David is not just a guy who throws a rock and makes a bunch of psalms on his harp or something like this. He is this warrior king that God sends, this anointed king to deliver God's people and to, to establish a kingdom of peace and these kind of things. So it's always meant to be read uh, in light of Christ. The language is more straight, straightforward in historical narrative than it is in things such as poetry, for example. In poetry, you get all this flowery kind of uh, hyperbolic language. The language in historical narrative is a lot more straightforward. Now, a lot of historical narrative contains other types of genres within it. So you'll be reading Matthew, which is historical narrative, but then you'll see parables in there. Or you'll be reading Genesis or Exodus or something, and then you'll see uh, you'll see elements of poetry in there. You'll see songs pop up, right? So after uh, God kills Pharaoh's army in the sea, you have this worship song to God, right? In the middle of historical narrative, you have poetry, you have song, and these kind of things. So a lot of times, historical narrative will have embedded within it uh, some other types of genres, okay? When reading historical narrative, you're going to typically take that more literally. You need to ask yourself, why is the author telling me this story? Why is the author telling me this story? Always be asking yourself that. Why is this story told? Is it just a random cool story or is there something he's trying to get across? And there's always something he's trying to get across. Look for comments by the author or the editor to help you find the meaning of the text. That's a really helpful key. A lot of times the author will say, I have written this for this reason. I have written this that you might know that Jesus is the Christ and by knowing him you have eternal life. Sometimes, you know, for example, the author of a gospel will just tell us that. Mark 7.19 says, Thus he declared all foods clean when talking about Jesus' practice 
of, uh, you know, the Pharisees wash all these cups and dishes and these kind of things. Uh, Jesus eats with unwashed hands, et cetera, et cetera. And he'll give this comment that thus he declared all foods clean. And so I know now why Mark is telling me that story. Make sure you don't miss the point of the story by focusing on one of the small details, okay? You see this a lot. I'll give you an example. Um, There are pastors who will get up, and from the book of Acts, they'll take the the scene where Paul is out on the sea and a storm arises, and they'll then use that to talk about how God can get you through the stormy seas of life. That is theological malpractice. Don't do that, okay? That's not the purpose of the book of Acts or Paul's trip out on the sea, all right? It's about how the gospel is going to the whole earth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth as God said it would, and you're given some details of how this is accomplished, and part of that is through Paul going to these different towns, and he's involved in these shipwrecks and these kind of things. Uh, you'll hear some people say, and by the way, I'm not getting into the whole debate of how you should school your kids, whether it's homeschool or public school or private school or whatever, uh, but the reasoning I'm about to give is, is silly. So I'm not attacking something. I'm just going to say the reasoning is not good, but there are people that would say that you need to only homeschool your kids because Jesus was homeschooled. Okay, you can debate the merits of homeschool or public or private school. All that's fine, but the reasoning there doesn't work, all right? That's not the purpose of knowing that Jesus is raised in Joseph and Mary's household or something like that, okay? So we want to make sure that we don't miss the point of the story. We want to find that point of the story that the author is telling us. Let me give you an example. Let me give you an example of historical narrative. Matthew 8, 23 through 27. And when he got into the boat, his disciples, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? That's historical narrative. That's a literal story. Jesus literally did calm the winds and the waves. But you have to ask yourself some things. You have to ask yourself, what is the point? What is the point of the story there is told in Matthew? And here's the point, that Jesus is no mere prophet. I can't get out and tell the clouds what to do. In fact, it's specifically Yahweh in the Old Testament that tells the proud sea where its borders are, that it can go this far and no further. It's God who uh, sends the Spirit at the beginning of uh, Genesis to calm the, the seas of chaos and these kind of things. What you're meant to see here is that Jesus is no mere prophet. He is the second person of the Trinity, God himself. That's why creation obeys him. Number two, let's talk about this other genre, prophecy. This is probably one of the most misunderstood genres. Let's talk briefly about prophecy. Let me give you a definition. Prophecy is simply a word from God to his people. That's what it is, simply a word from God to his people. Okay. Now, it is more often when we see prophecy that it is forthtelling than it is foretelling. What do I mean by that? Typically, prophecy is not just this prediction of what's going to happen in the future. There is that kind of prophecy. It is all over the place, but that's not the primary way that it's used. The primary way you see prophecy in the Old Testament is this word of God to repent, to repent, to trust in him. And if you don't repent, then here's what's going to happen in the future. But the focus is more typically just a word from God to his people to somehow help them, to call them back, to call them to repentance, to call them to faith, these kind of things. Yes, there's future elements, but that's not really the main thrust. 
Now, in interpreting prophecy, you have to keep a few things in mind. One, you have to ask yourself, who is the original author and who is the original audience of the prophecy? You can't apply every prophecy in a one-to-one correspondence with today. Certain things are meant to be said to Israel as they're forsaking God, or certain things are meant to be said about the nation of, I don't know, Edom or Assyria or something like that. You need to keep those things in mind. They can still be applied in a general way that we need to repent or something like that, but you have to keep in mind the original context. One of the uh, big errors of the whole prosperity gospel word of faith movement is it would take a prophecy specifically made to Israel for a specific time and make it conditional, and it would make it now for everybody unconditionally, okay? That's not how we read the Bible. Another thing to know, we need to know that prophecy uses figurative, poetic, and exaggerated language, okay? Figurative, poetic, and exaggerated language. The moon will turn to blood, stars will fall from the sky, the earth will be shaken. It uses this kind of cataclysmic language. That doesn't mean that God's judgment is not actually severe, but just know that it is part of the form of prophecy to use exaggerated and hyperbolic and figurative kind of uh, star-struck language uh, in its reading. We, we don't, there is a hermeneutical principle that goes, read everything is literal, unless you can't, and it doesn't make sense, then you can take it as figurative, okay? There are certain seminaries even that promote that idea. That's not the correct way to read the Bible. You read the Bible starting with knowing its genre. Some genres you would never want to start literal. I don't, I don't start reading Lord of the Rings and say, I need to start thinking this is literal and then see that I need to take it more figuratively. No, the genre lets me know that I need to start knowing that it's going to have more exaggerated and figurative language because of the genre. It's the same way in the Bible, Another thing to keep in mind is we need to be careful when drawing out prophetic conclusions that the text doesn't state explicitly. When the text says this is what this means, we've got pretty sure footing to know what it means. Or when the New Testament authors interpret a passage, we can say we have biblical warrant for knowing that the passage should be interpreted this way. When we don't have that, though, we need to be really careful that we don't misapply this or else we end up, uh, you know... Uh, in some sort of cult in Waco with David Koresh. We never want to be there, by the way. Our, our goal always as Christians is to not end up in some sort of weird death cult. That's always one of our goals. We have many goals, but that's certainly one of them, okay? So keep that in mind, especially with prophecy, okay? Now, here's a question that people ask all the time, and it's been asked in this class several times, so I want to address it best I can. And here's the question. How should we understand the places in the New Testament where they seem to interpret an Old Testament prophecy in a way that is outside of the original context, okay? So what we said a few classes ago was that it is the author that is the primary determiner of meaning for a text. What do you do then with, for example, in the book of Matthew, where Matthew says, as it is written, talking about Jesus, out of Israel I called my son, and you go look back to the original quote of that from the Old Testament, and it's talking about God delivering Israel out of Egypt with Moses, What do you do with that? Because this is all over the New Testament, by the way. They will quote some type of Old Testament passage, and they will have it applied to Jesus. And when you go back and look at the original context, it looks like the New Testament authors are taking these passages out of context. How are we to understand prophecy like this? Okay? Let me give you two different options. I'm not sure which one is right. I favor the second one, but I want to give you both of them because they're both smart positions. The first one is what is called, I'm going to give you a fancy Latin phrase, it's called census plenier, okay? Census plenier. Census plenier is a Latin phrase that means a fuller sense, a fuller sense. 
Okay? So what those who hold to census plenary will say is that the human author wasn't thinking of Jesus. The human author meant one thing in particular in context, but the divine author, God, had a fuller meaning, a fuller sense. Right? So Isaiah is just talking about this lady who's going to have a son before this king, you know, rises to power or attacks or is attacked or whatever. But God is meaning this fuller sense of that passage about a virgin birth referring to Jesus, okay? Now, by the way, this issue of, uh, of census plenier and stuff really only comes up mainly with prophecy, right? But here is the benefit of census plenier. The benefit of the census plenier position is it explains how the New Testament authors can seem to use passages in the Old Testament that appear that they're out of context. They might appear to be out of context with the meaning of the human author, but they're not out of context with the divine author. Here's the big problem, and this is what keeps me up late at night with census plenier. You now start dividing the meaning of the human author from the meaning of the divine author. How do you know the divine author's meaning if not through the human author? Now, by the way, this, again, is only a problem for prophecy. For everywhere else in the Bible, whatever the human author means is what God means, right? When Paul says not to commit sexual immorality, that is God also saying do not commit sexual immorality, right? When Paul says to repent and trust in Christ, that is also God saying to repent and trust in Christ. If we say that the author is the primary determiner of meaning like we hold as evangelicals, as traditionally Christians have held in Protestant circles, then it's very dangerous to split the meaning of the human author from the meaning of the divine author. How would you do that? You know the divine author's meaning because of the human author. So that's the big problem that census plenier runs into. Now, there's a second way of dealing with these prophetic texts and how they're applied in the New Testament, though it seems like they're out of context from the Old Testament. The second view is simply called, and here's a, just a long theological phrase, Christological typology. All right? Impress your friends. Use, use that long phrase at dinner. Uh, that way they know uh, that you're pretentious, right, or something like this. So Christological typology. What does that mean? That means that what the New Testament authors are doing is they're not trying to figure out, was this the original meaning from the human author? Is this the original meaning from the divine author? Is this a fuller sense? They're not asking that question. What they're doing is they're saying, all of the Old Testament has always been about Christ, Is that not what Jesus says when he's on the road to Emmaus? He shows how all the law and all of the prophets are about him. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in Christ. So they don't have to worry about whether or not the author is thinking about Jesus when he's talking about out of Egypt I called my son. That always has to be true because all of the Bible is about Jesus. The temple is about Jesus and Israel being called out is about Jesus and Moses is about Jesus and Noah is about Jesus and Adam's about Jesus. Everything's about Jesus. So what they'll do is not try to ask this question of do we split human and divine author. They'll just say, listen, God has always wanted to make his word ultimately about Christ. So to take a passage in the Old Testament and see its fulfillment in Jesus is legitimate. It's fine to do that. Jesus is the hermeneutical key. He is the solution. He is the code to interpreting the Bible correctly. Okay? I'll give you an example of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned, every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. All right? Prophecy. This encouraging word of how God is reconciling the world through Christ. Number three, one that uh, genre that is related to prophecy but a little bit different, what is called apocalyptic. 
Let's talk about this genre called apocalyptic. This is not typically one that we have today. So you know poetry in English. You know history in English. You know, uh, you know what a Western is in English. But we typically in English don't have this genre known as apocalyptic. We, we do a little bit. You'll have certain movies that are apocalyptic in genre. But it's not quite as popular as some of the others. Well, in Judaism, this is a very popular genre. You can go read the Testament of Moses or, or the Apocalypse of you know, uh, Elijah or First Enoch or something like this, some of these books that I can't even remember the name right now off the top of my head. But anyway, there's a bunch of Jewish works of apocalyptic literature, and uh, we have some of those in the Bible. The two big ones being the book of Revelation. Again, no S. You don't say Revelations. All right, Revelation. And then the other one being Daniel. Now, there's other parts, for example, in Ezekiel. There's parts in other uh, books that, uh, of the Bible that are kind of apocalyptic. But really, the big ones are Daniel and Revelation. And uh, apocalyptic is, let me give you a definition. Apocalyptic literature is Jewish literature that uses symbolic imagery to reveal God's mysterious behind-the-scenes plans and what he will do in the future. Jewish literature that uses symbolic imagery to reveal God's mysterious, behind-the-scenes plans and what he will do in the future. There's a New Testament scholar who is definitely not a friend to the faith. His name is Bart Ehrman. He's actually devoted his entire professional career to trying to destroy Christianity. But he says something that is very smart when it comes to apocalyptic. Here's the definition he gives it. He says that it is a sci-fi theonomy for the oppressed. Sci-fi because it uses otherworldly language, the sky falling and these kind of things. A theonomy is this wrestle of how there can be evil in the world if there is a good God and then for the oppressed. So it uses this kind of sci-fi imagery of how this evil can be down here, why God's people are suffering, and it's a way to encourage those who are oppressed. Basically, what apocalyptic literature does is this. God's people see how the world is corrupted, how evil seems to be winning, how believers are being killed and the wicked are flourishing. But the apocalyptic knows that that's not the end of the story. Apocalyptic literature kind of gives you a behind the scenes, a God's eye view of what's going on. And there's a hope that though it seems like the enemy's winning now, God is going to come back and he is going to put the world back to rights. He will vindicate the righteous. He will judge the wicked and everything will be okay. You see this in the book of Revelation. Though people are being martyred and Christians are being killed for their faith, when you see what's going on in the throne room of God, he is being worshiped and he is in control and everything is okay. Because though it looks like Rome is in charge and she's this beautiful woman, when you peel back the veneer, she's actually this harlot riding on this beast fueled by the devil and Christ will come back and destroy her. By the way, that's how you interpret the book of Revelation. You don't open your newspaper. You don't do anything like that. You don't turn on some sort of televangelist or something like that. Especially don't do that. Revelation is written to do this, to write to Christians in these churches and say, though you are being persecuted by Rome, do not give in to their idolatry, do not give in to their sensuality, do not give in to their wickedness. Instead, stay faithful to Jesus because he's in charge and he is going to come back and he will show you that he is king and not Rome and not Caesar. He's in charge. He will destroy your enemies. He will raise you. He will vindicate you. And then there's no more crying, no more weeping, no more pain, and everything is, will be good. It is a tremendous encouragement for those who are hurting, those who are oppressed. Okay? Some elements within apocalyptic literature. Apocalyptic literature typically contains angels, messengers, a secret view of what God is doing behind the scenes. An expectation of the end, kind of the end is near kind of a feel to apocalyptic literature. The idea of final judgment, 
the idea of a, a journey of someone up to heaven, or maybe they're shown a heavenly vision, warnings of distress, woe to the earth, that kind of stuff, uh, and an encouragement to remain faithful. This isn't just the case in uh, the Bible, but even in these works outside of the Bible, known as Jewish apocalyptic, all right? Jewish apocalyptic. There's a, uh, one of the Dead Sea Scrolls is what's called the War Scroll, and it talks about this kind of final end times battle, uh, and it's a type of apocalyptic literature in the kind of language that it uses, okay? So just to summarize, apocalyptic literature is sort of like this. Though it seems like the unrighteous have the upper hand, stay faithful because God is really in control, and he's going to break into history and judge the evil and vindicate the righteous, Okay? Now, when we read apocalyptic literature, we need to read it in light of other apocalyptic literature, right? We need to read it in light, especially of Daniel and Revelation and then, again, parts of Ezekiel. But we need to look at other Jewish apocalyptic literature to see how they interpreted these different symbols, okay? And then lastly on this genre, it must make sense to its original audience before it, can, before it has relevance to us. It does have relevance to us. I'm not just saying that Revelation was just written to Christians 2,000 years ago, for example. It must have a relevance to us, but we can't find out what that relevance is until we understand what the original relevance of it was, right? So whatever interpretation we come up with needs to have made sense to its original audience. Before we apply it to us as Christians today, 2,000 years from now, half the world away in a different language and culture, we need to understand what it was 2,000 years ago to Jewish Christians under Roman domination under a different language and culture, okay? It must make sense in its original audience before it has any relevance to us. I'll give you some examples. Or let's just look at one example. Revelation 17, 7 through 8. But the angel, you see an angel, that's pretty common in apocalyptic literature. By the way, the word angelos can mean either messenger or angel, but when you're dealing with apocalyptic literature, it uh, most often is going to mean what we typically think of as this heavenly being, like an angel. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery, all right? So we see this kind of mystery being revealed. That's a form of apocalyptic. Uh, Mystery of the woman and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. You see this vindication. You see destruction language. We see that the end is near. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. There's some more election for you that we talked about last week. From the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. All right? That's an example of some apocalyptic type imagery. Number four, another genre, Proverbs. Proverbs. This mainly includes, wait for it, this is going to blow your mind, the book of Proverbs. Uh, But it also includes, it could include things like in Ecclesiastes and some of these other things elsewhere in the Bible. But Proverbs, what are Proverbs? Proverbs are short, pithy sayings that are generally true but allow for some exceptions, okay? Proverbs are short, pithy sayings that are generally true but allow for some exceptions. Proverbs are kind of like God's Twitter, He says something short and pithy and powerful in like 140 characters or less, and then we as Christians retweet it or something, okay? All right, it's this this type of wisdom literature that uses these short, pithy, memorable sayings to express general truths, general truths. Now, let me be clear. There are some proverbs that are 100% true all of the time without any exception. Oh, well, they're all 100% true, but some of them talk about generalities, and some of them are meant to be universals. There are proverbs <clears throat> that are universal. I'll give you an example. Proverbs 11.1. 1. 
A a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes God hates falsehood in commerce and other times he's okay with it. That means all of the time he hates lying and stealing and cheating people out of commerce. But the majority of the Proverbs are this. Ready? They're general truths. They're not always the case 100% of the time. Okay? Not always the case 100% of the time. I'll give you an example. Proverbs 26, 4 through 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. This text just said opposite things. Don't rebuke a fool and rebuke a fool. Is that a contradiction? What's going on? Well, this is wisdom literature. It's meant to show you what is the wise thing to do, and it will vary, for example, in this case, depending upon the circumstance. There are times you should go rebuke a fool and shut them down when they're being foolish. There are other times, though, where you shouldn't rebuke a fool because you're wasting your time and you're casting your pearls before swine. You're supposed to know when to apply this proverb in day-to-day life, all right, in day-to-day life. So we need to keep in mind that a lot of times these are general truths, general truths. Now, by the way, that doesn't make them any less true, right? God is accommodating to this genre to still get his truth across. In the same way that when God uses poetic or exaggerated language in the Psalms, that doesn't make it less true just because it's poetic. Here, just because these are general truths, that doesn't mean that God is somehow like half lying. God is saying 100% of the time, this is a general truth. 100% of the time, This is generally what happens. So it has nothing to do with God's truthfulness. We just have to understand God's truthfulness uh, within its correct genre, right? Within the correct genre. I'll give you an example. This is a really, really common one. Ready? Proverbs 22.6. Train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, this is God's word. Is it true that that is generally the case? Yes. Yes. Okay? Okay. A lot of times when you raise a kid in the faith and teach them about Jesus, not just rules, but about grace and the gospel and these kind of things, they come to know God. But is this a 100% this will always happen if you raise your kids in the faith? No, it's not. No, it's not. I know of people who had amazing parents who loved them well and shared Jesus with them well and taught them right and wrong well, and when they got older, they just turned their back on everything righteous and just went off the deep end. Conversely, I know others who had just terrible, awful pagan parents, and they love Christ. All right? They love Christ. They walk in holiness. It's a general truth. If you don't understand that, this text is going to rip your heart out when your kid walks away from you when they're 18. Right? Because you're going to think either God has lied to me in his word or I am just a terrible parent and I have failed. Listen, we fail as parents. We do that. If you're ever wondering, have I been a perfect parent? The answer is no, and neither have I. But we repent where we fail, but our children's salvation is ultimately up to God. And by the way, that's not bad news. If our kid's salvation is up to us, I can't even remember people's names. I can't even like not trip over my own feet sometimes. If my son's salvation is up to me, that's really scary. He might just not make it. But if it's up to God, and God calls him to himself, God cannot fail, right? Number five, Poetry, poetry, okay? There's a lot of poetry in the Bible. What is poetry? Poetry is this type of literature that uses figurative, exaggerated, and emotional language. It uses figurative, exaggerated, and emotional 
language. That's how poetry works. Again, that doesn't make it any less true just because it uses a different type of language. Okay, let me explain something real quick. When people say, do you take the Bible literally, that question is really confusing. I take the literal parts of the Bible literally and the parts that are supposed to be figurative. I take figuratively, all those those figurative parts still have a literal point, okay? Let me rewind and explain what I mean. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you two categories. All of the Bible falls in these two categories. Ready? I'm going to call the first one literal, literal, okay? That's a really creative name for you, literal, literal. What I mean by that is it will use literal language to make a literal point. If the text says Jesus went into Jerusalem, that's literal language. That's history. That's narrative. What is the point of Jesus going into Jerusalem? Ready? It's going to blow your mind again. It's just that he went into Jerusalem. Okay? So it uses literal language to make a literal point. Other times, the Bible uses figurative language, but just because it uses figurative language, that doesn't mean it's any less true. It doesn't mean there's not a literal point. So there's literal literal, which is literal language with a literal point, and then there's what I call figurative literal, which is figurative language, but there is still a literal point, okay? There is still a literal point. So we used this example, I think, uh, a couple weeks ago or last week in Revelation where it says that a sharp double-edged sword comes out of Jesus' mouth. That doesn't mean that he literally vomits a sword. It's not that the sword was inside him down in his stomach for a really long time until he was able to vomit it. That's not the point. That's figurative language. But just because it's figurative doesn't mean it's fake or unimportant. What is the literal point of that figurative sword? It's that Jesus really does judge with his word of power. I've told this story in here a few times where uh, I had a buddy that basically said, I think all the imagery used in the Bible of hell is figurative language. It's described as a really dark place, but it's also described as a place with fire. Fire produces light. I mean, how can those be true at the same time? And I just said to him, okay, or I just thought to myself, okay, so let's say it is figurative language. Figurative for what? Figurative for something that's good that's going to happen or figurative for something that is really bad that's going to happen? Really bad that's going to happen. Jesus talks about our bodies burning, right? Because we're resurrected. So there's something very literally awful about hell, regardless of the language used to describe it. Okay? So again, they can use literal language for a literal point, or you can have figurative language, but there's always a literal point. God isn't just putting random flowery stuff in the Bible for no reason. There's a point to that flowery stuff. Okay? Now, with poetry in English, the main thing that we typically think of is rhyme, right? Roses are red, violets are blue, you know, sugar is sweet, and so are you, or trash is dumped, and so are you. I heard of a guy that broke up with his girlfriend via text message that way one time. Uh, and we look for rhyme, though, right? That's what we're looking for. We have these little rhymes. That's typically what we think of when we think of poetry. We've got a lot of other things, but that's just the main way we think of poetry. It doesn't have to rhyme, but that's the primary way we think. In Hebrew, though, the primary thing that's going on with poetry is what is called parallelism parallelism, okay? It's kind of where you say the same idea twice, or you say an idea and you elaborate on it on the second sentence, or you say an idea and you give its antithesis in the next line. So it'll say something like, God really loves the just and he really hates the wicked, okay? By the way, that's not an actual quote. I'm just pulling that out of nowhere. That's from First Zachary 2 or something, okay? So, uh, but you get the point. It'll say, blessed are those who trust in the Lord and those who make God their strength. You see the parallelism, something like that. Okay, again, I'm just pulling out random quotes. I could have actually used some, but I'm just going to make some up here. Or it will say things like, uh, 
Strong is he who trusts in God's word, but weak is he who doesn't. Again, I just made that up. I'm just making up Bible verses. But you get the point. There's this parallelism uh, between the, the, the Bible will say one thing and it will say something else that either is saying the same thing it just said in different words or it's giving a contrast or it's elaborating on that thing. Six things God hates, seven things he abhors, for example, that kind of stuff. That's called parallelism. And so uh, parallelism is helpful because when we're interpreting poetry, a lot of times we can look at the lines around it to understand better what is going on in the line we're trying to interpret, okay? Now, poetry is often meant to invoke emotion or empathy. We're not just supposed to read and see how the psalmist cries out that God has forsaken him and just think, oh yeah, there's there's just some words about forsakenness. We're supposed to feel that. We're supposed to have an emotional response. We're supposed to realize that uh, there's a sense in which God speaks to us through the Bible, and we learn how to speak to him through the Psalms, okay? Through the Psalms. Let me give you an example of some poetry. Song of Solomon. Hmm, what's, what am I going to read? What's that going to say? Song of Solomon 4.2. Uh, Song of Solomon is... Uh, Hebrew erotic love poetry. That's what it is. But don't worry, I'm not going to read anything too spicy uh, in here today. I'll just give you one. Song of Solomon 4.2. Your teeth are like a flock of shorn ewes that have come up from the washing, all of which bear twins, and not one among them has lost its young. This girl is hot because she's got all her teeth. Mm, That's what he's saying, all right? One of the great things he loves as he's praising this girl is that her teeth, each tooth has its twin, like some sheep. All right, can I, can I get an amen from Dr. Steve? He's a dentist, all right? Nothing more attractive than, than having all your teeth. So this is meant to be poetic imagery. You don't read this and say, I wonder if her teeth were furry because they're compared to sheep, all right? That's not the point. The point is that uh, you're supposed to see the figurative language that links the beauty of these flocks coming up from the washing like this girl's beautiful smile, okay? Number six, Parables. Parables are a type of genre, parables. By the way, about one-third of Jesus' teaching is done in parables. Let me give you a definition of a parable. It's a short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. A short, fictitious story that illustrates a moral attitude or a religious principle. There has to be a comparison for a parable to make sense. We have parables in English, right? Like a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I didn't know what that meant for like 20 years, It means something like the one thing that you actually have is better than the two things that you don't have. Or we've got other ones. We have things like God helps them who help themselves, which not only is Pelagian and unbiblical, it's not in the Bible. It comes from Benjamin Franklin, but that's kind of an American proverb. You have African proverbs, Chinese proverbs. Proverbs are these little kind of, uh, I'm sorry, uh, you have these little sayings, these little parables, as well as proverbs, like we talked about earlier, that kind of catch on within a culture. Now, we will use parables and Proverbs. I'm combining the two because there's a sense in which you can tell a parable like it is a proverb, right? Because it becomes this story that you remember to teach some sort of moral point. So sorry for conflating those two. Let me, let me just step back into parables. Parables become these little stories to help elucidate a point you're trying to make, okay? Now, sometimes when Jesus tells parables, he tells the parable so that he makes a story clearer, He's talking to people in an agrarian society. He's talking to people who understand farming. And so he'll tell some sort of story that has a spiritual point, and he'll use kind of physical examples. But let me just be really clear. That's not the only way that Jesus uses parables. Mark 4, 10 through 12. 
And when he was alone, those around him, the 12, asked him about the parables. Okay? Those around him with the 12 asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you it has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should return and be forgiven. One of the reasons Jesus tells parables is so people won't get the story, so that they won't repent, so that they will crucify him, so that he can die for the sins of mankind. There's some more election and predestination, if you want to say it that way, in this text. Jesus, why do you tell parables? Because I don't want these people to get it, because if they got it, they'd repent, and right now I don't want them to repent. I want them to continue doing what they're doing, so they crucify me and I die for the sins of the world. How about that? Okay. Now, when it comes to parables, don't press every point of a parable. We read St. Augustine's interpretation of the Good Samaritan, and he tries to make every part of the Good Samaritan some deeper spiritual meaning, right? So the the guy that gets beat up is Adam, and the innkeeper that he's taken to is Paul, and, you know, all these kind of things. That's not how you read a parable. Typically, a parable has one main point, okay? One main point. Now, it might have more than one, but typically there's only one. So, I mean, I'll give you an example that I've heard mistaught a lot. The story of the prodigal son, the parable of the prodigal son. I have heard literally a hundred billion sermons on that. Now, not literally. I'm using the figurative literal that I taught you about. By saying I've heard a billion sermons, that's not literal, but the literal point is there. I've heard a lot of sermons, okay? I've heard a lot of sermons where the point of the story of the prodigal son is about the prodigal. It's used on like evangelism weekend to, to call the prodigal in to receive Jesus or something like that. Yes and amen to sinners getting saved. Yes and amen to prodigals returning. That is not the point of the prodigal son, the story of the, the parable of the prodigal son, okay? The story is not primarily about the first son. Conversely, I've heard other people make it primarily about the second son who refuses to rejoice and come in with the, the first son when he comes home. That's a, a point of the story, but again, it's not the main point. The main point of the story of the prodigal son is the father. Jesus starts the story with a man had two sons. Jesus is eating with sinners, and he's being rebuked for it. And so he tells a story to say, in eating with sinners, I'm simply having the heart of God, and you should have the heart of God. Instead of being the older brother that's mad and stays in the field, you should rejoice when sinners come into the house. The main point of the story of the prodigal son is the father first, the second son second, and then the prodigal is kind of like the, the last point. Okay, it's not the main point. So we have to ask ourselves, what is the main point of the parable? And there's some things we can look for to decide that. <clears throat> the main point of the parable can be seen often by recognizing the main characters, okay, the main characters in the story. Um, you can see the main point by seeing who gets the most space in the story sometimes, okay, by looking at who gets the most space. Again, these are general rules. These are not, uh, this is not 100% of the time, uh, but these are some, some helpful tips. Um, you need to see how it's interpreted in the end. See how the parable is interpreted in the end. A lot of times the story will kind of come full circle and there'll be some sort of concluding phrase or, or you'll kind of see how it's being used. Uh, looking at the context is really big. Typically something's going on and then Jesus tells a parable. All right, So he's fighting with the Pharisees or, or something like this and then he tells a parable. So pay attention to the larger context. Uh, pay attention to the dialogue in the parable. So if there are people talking in the parable, that can be a helpful indicator of the main point of that parable, okay? Now, here's an example of one, Luke 15, 8 through 10. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost." 
Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What is the point of that story? You don't say things like, the point of that story is that this lady's friends rejoice with her. Um, maybe a little bit. You don't say the point of this story is this lady must have had a really big house because it took her forever to find the coin. The point is in the same way that this lady rejoices and then calls her friend to rejoice over one sinner, so the angels rejoice. Okay, that's the main point. Lastly, and then we'll give some tips on how to recognize symbolic language, epistles. Epistles, those are not the wives of the apostles. Epistles are simply letters, all right? They're simply letters. We have a lot of this in the New Testament, especially from the Apostle Paul, but an epistle is simply a letter or a note. Now, oftentimes, epistles take the form of ancient letters. You see things like an introduction of the author. We don't do that. When we write a letter, we sign our name at the end. But in ancient letters, they would sign it kind of at the, uh, at the beginning. But you see the introduction of an author, things like a greeting, a thanksgiving for participating in the gospel. You see the main content of the letter, which is either theological, eth- ethical, or sometimes both. You'll see thanksgiving in the end and a benediction or a final greeting a lot of times at the end of these epistles. This is why it's unique in the book of Galatians when Paul doesn't have this long extended how thankful he is for them. He's got a little bit, but he just jumps right into who has bewitched you because you've forsaken the gospel. It's this very rebuking tone. It's significant because it doesn't have all the same elements uh, of uh, some of Paul's other letters. And so uh, what you need to be looking for, though, in epistle, they're pretty straightforward. It's the same way that you would kind of read an email or a letter today. Someone is writing to give some type of instruction, typically, again, theological or ethical, most of the time both. And so uh, it helps in reading an epistle to read the whole thing in one setting. Now, that sounds like a lot. When we say there are 66 books of the Bible, let's remember that some of those books are like a page, Okay. So let this, let this be convicting for all of us, myself included. How long do you think it takes to read the book of Philippians? If you take the book of Philippians and you copy and paste it into a Microsoft Word document with Times, 12 font, or with Times New Roman size 12 font, it's about three and a half pages. That's it. You can read the entire book of Philippians in three and a half Word document pages. What does that take you, like 15 minutes or less? Okay, the entire book of Philippians. You could read an entire book of the Bible every day. Something like, I don't know, Second Timothy is like two and three quarters pages if you paste it in a Microsoft Word. So we uh, have a tendency sometimes to just focus on the minutia within these epistles. They were originally meant to be read out loud in their entirety to the entire congregation, most of whom were, were illiterate. So there's nothing wrong with breaking it down and going line by line, but as we go line by line, we have to keep in mind the context of the entire epistle. As we're going through, for example, this series in Ephesians that we're going through, it's good and right to walk through it in a micro level. But we always have to keep in mind the macro level of the rest of the letter. And then outside of that, the rest of the New Testament. Outside of that, the rest of the Bible, okay? So we need to keep those things in mind. When you're reading an epistle, okay, try to understand the author and look for the reasons that the author gives for what they're saying. People get all kinds of weirdo interpretations by interpreting something that would have never made sense to the original audience or by giving reasons that the author doesn't give. The author will tell you typically in an epistle exactly why he's saying what he's saying and how to carry it out. Okay, epistles are very detailed. I'll give you a controversial example. We'll talk more about this when we talk about men's and women's roles when we get to that in Ephesians. But 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 14 I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. 
Whether you like that or not, I didn't give any commentary. I just read the scripture, okay? So what people will do is they'll say, okay, a woman can't be a teacher, but that's not for today, Zach. That's just in their culture. Or they'll say, well, the problem is just that women back then weren't as educated or that uh, the reason a woman can't be, uh, you know, to teach or have authority over a man is because, you know, the women in uh, this culture were teaching heresy. And they give all these other reasons that the text doesn't give. Here's the reason Paul gives. He tells you why a woman can't uh, exercise authority or teach over a man within a church setting. When he says, or within the the gathered uh, setting for worship, he says, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. He bases it off of creation order and fall order. Unless those have changed, and they haven't, this is still binding for today, okay? It's not just a cultural thing. He doesn't say wives, or he doesn't say, I don't permit a woman to do this because in this culture women aren't allowed to. He bases it off the creation order and the fall order. Now, to be fair, in the rest of the Bible, The onus is on Adam for the failure of mankind, okay? He is the the one that messed it up. But I just want to read this example to say we have to look for the author's reason behind what he says, not just what we think is the reason. Lastly, let me give you some tips. How to recognize symbolic or hyperbolic language in the Bible. Number one, we talked about this, know the genre of a text. Some texts... Uh, lean themselves towards a more literal reading, okay? Something like uh, Genesis is historical narrative. Matthew is historical narrative, all right? These kind of things. Whereas others, like, uh, you know, like I mentioned Song of Solomon or, you know, uh, the Psalms or something like that are going to be more poetic. Number two, know that just because something uses symbolic language, that language still has a literal point. We talked about that. Number three, if the statement is literally impossible, it may be hyperbolic language, Okay, so one of the ways you can tell that there's kind of this exaggerated or hyperbolic language is if literally what's being said wouldn't make any sense. So when Jesus says that it's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God than a camel going through the eye of the needle, okay, we know that there's hyperbolic language there. A camel cannot go through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. By the way, that's the point of the parable, that apart from Jesus, it is impossible for you to enter the kingdom of God. With man, it's impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Not that it's difficult The eye of the needle is not some sort of gateway in Jerusalem, which you'll hear sometimes people say, we've never found any gate in Jerusalem called the eye of the needle that that misses the point of what Jesus is saying entirely. Jesus is saying that it's impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God, which is why only God can do it, and they need Christ, and they need to forsake whatever they're holding on to that they love more than Christ for the sake of the kingdom. Okay? Number four, if a statement contradicts something else the Bible says, it may be hyperbolic. Right? So when Jesus says that unless one hates their father or mother or brother or sister, that they can't be his disciple, this doesn't mean now that you literally try to emotionally hate all your family members. His point is that you should love him so much that even those you love the most, when compared with your love for Christ, your love for them is as hate. You love Jesus so much that the way you love other people would look like hate because you love Christ so much. Not that you actually hate them. You love them. That's just how much you should love Christ. Okay? Number five, the statement's literal fulfillment would not achieve the desired goal. So when Jesus talks about cutting off your hand or gouging out your eye, that would not actually stop lust, right? If you gouged out your eye and cut off your hand, guess what you'd still be tempted to do? Lust in your heart. So the goal is not that we all need to look like pirates with our eye patches and hooks and these kind of things. His point is go to whatever extreme you need to to not sin. That's his point. In a modern-day context, that would look like something like getting rid of your internet, maybe, or getting rid of your smartphone and getting an old, I'm going to just call it a dumb phone. 
But Zach, that's super inconvenient. Yes, it's super inconvenient also to gouge out your eye and cut off your hand. That's his point. But it's way more convenient than going to hell. That's his point, okay? Number six, the statement uses universal language, right? Sometimes there's hyperbolic language when the statement uses universal language, right? So if the Bible says the gospel has gone out to the whole world, does that mean that there is, there's not one single person on earth who hasn't heard about the gospel? No, the point is that the gospel's gone out generally from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth. Or you'll hear people get confused that are not reformed like we are here at Parkway, and they'll say, well, John 3.16 that says, for God so loved the world. And I have to explain, well, what that means is that simply God loves humanity. God has sent Christ to be the Savior of humanity. When you say, so God loves the world, therefore he's going to save everybody or everyone's elect or he looks ahead in the future and sees who's going to choose him, well, I mean, the Bible says he doesn't love Esau. He hates Esau. So when you say he loves the whole world, you have to at least exclude Esau. Right? So the whole, that's not the point of that text. The point of the text is to say God loves humans and he sent Christ to save us. That's the point. It's not meant to be a point on the whole Calvinism, Arminianism debate. And then number seven, a statement is used for rhetorical effect. If you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, be cast into the ocean and it will. Okay? That's not to say that God doesn't want the mountains where he's put them. He wants the mountains there. That's why he put them there. The whole point, though, is that you can do great things with faith. That's the point, that, that uh, nothing is impossible with God, okay? Okay, now let's have uh, some questions, and uh, then we will head over to service.